0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we talk with the author about that book and about some of the deeper issues in sport, society, and culture. This week, we are talking about the way that most fans experience sports by watching on television. My guest is Martin Kellner. Martin has been a journalist for British newspapers and magazines for some four decades, and he's been a presenter on a variety of radio and television programs in that same span. Currently, you can hear him on the afternoon program on BBC Radio Leeds. As he explains in our interview, one of his long-standing jobs was writing a column for The Guardian newspaper on sports television. Martin would watch the weekend's matches on TV and then write about what he saw with a dose of informed criticism and pointed humor. Martin's new book takes something of this approach to the history of sports on television in Britain. The book is titled, Sit Down and Cheer, A History of Sport on TV. It was published under the Wisden Sports Writing imprint of Bloomsbury Press, in 2012. Martin's book consists of two interwoven threads. One is the history of sports on television in the UK from the BBC's first experiments with the new technology to the 24-hour satellite sports networks of today. The other thread is Martin's account of his life as a fan watching cricket tests and cup finals and rugby league on the TV. One thing I realized in reading Martin's book and talking with him is that even though a fan from the States and one from England have spent their lives watching different events and different programs and different on-air personalities, there are still, surprisingly, many parallels between our experiences of watching sports on television. In other words, you need not have been a watcher of grandstand or match of the day to appreciate this interview. No matter where you grew up watching sports on TV, you'll find something familiar in Martin's stories. And I think you'll have a laugh as well. Here is my conversation with Martin
1: Martin, tell us about your sofa. Well, now, <laughs> my is very important to me. For about uh, 16 years, uh, I was writing a column for The Guardian, uh, an English newspaper, uh, about sport on TV. So it's a humorous column, uh, and what it means is I, I watch most of the sport that crops up on the TV. I watch some documentaries about sport and that sort of thing. I'm now writing the same column or a similar column for The Racing Post, which is a, a largely horse racing gambling paper uh, in the UK. So... Um, um, basically, I need to have a comfortable sofa uh, to sit on to watch all this sport. And um, I shopped around very carefully and I got uh, a sofa that was... Um, you know, I looked at all the specifications and this claimed to have extremely comfortable seats. Uh, so while since I wrote the books, I've forgotten the actual name of the sofa. It's a Mitford, that's what it is. So the, uh, the sofa's named after the Mitfords, a famous English family. And I thought, well, that's bound to be comfortable enough for me. To sit on, and uh, my pants early on, uh, early on, a uh, underwear—that's how you call it in America. <laughs> in underwear early on a Saturday morning, watching rugby league from Australia.
0: I was just going to ask, and what is your ideal day on on the sofa? What what will you be watching? What will you be eating, and, and so forth.
1: Well, snacks are very important now. Um, well, I mean, I know important to Americans too. Uh, and you need a snack that you can. They you can eat easily with one hand. That's not too messy, and you can watch the uh, you watch the sport at the same time. Uh, I think Seinfeld said the same thing about cereal because Seinfeld was a great watcher of TV, and he always said he loves cereal because you just put the milk on it to the bowl. You eat, you drink, and you watch TV. Your eyes don't stray from the screen. It's the same with snacks. You need something very solid so uh, I think you know you don't want sort of flimsy snacks you know very solid uh, uh, chips you call them in the states but you know we call them crisps over here Um, so in a packet you can just pick them up and eat them and that's fine and this is where a lot of uh, a lot of women my wife included go wrong she says ah it's the cup final today that's a bit you know it's like uh, you know it's the grand final it's the cup final it's like the Super Bowl really uh, in soccer Uh, and she'll say it's a cup final today you want something special and she'll come with tortilla chips and the various dips and i said no no you don't want dips when you're watching sports on tv they'll end up all over your shirt so uh, yeah snack selection is important
0: so martin we should ask you to give a brief introduction and uh, the one item in your expansive cv that i'll ask about is what you've mentioned already the column that you wrote for 16 years uh for the guardian screen break which looked at sports on television. So so how did you get in the business with all of your other activities? How did you get in the business of writing about sport on television?
1: Well, it's interesting. I, I, I used to uh, review movies and TV. I used to write little capsule reviews um, for, uh, for TV programmes, which I did um, when I was fairly early into the journalism game, uh, for The Independent, which was another British newspaper. And it just happened purely by chance. The guy uh, who worked on the on the same page, you know, sub- sub-editing the uh, stuff, got a job on The Guardians and number three on the sports desk. And he just had this idea one day, he just rang me up and said, um, you know, because uh, they were... Mildly amusing, pithy reviews which I used to like to write and he called me up one day and said "Um, do you watch any sport on TV? And I said well yeah, I do usually but in actual fact I used to like to go to the games Mm -hmm. but he said "Uh, do you watch on TV? I said yeah a little bit. He said how about writing um, a little review for us on a a Saturday about that? So I went ahead and did it. Um, In a way I was um, causing myself all sorts of problems because what it meant then was that because the column went quite well and people liked it I was restricted to watching sport on TV. Definitely. So after having, after 25 years or whatever it is, having grown up with sport and gone to all the matches uh, on a Saturday, I was now stuck at home in front of the TV which was um, a little bit galling to me and, and the column became very popular and uh, uh, I got to um, I got to you know write it on a, on a regular basis and all that sort of thing but at the time when there was Olympic Games and there was World Cups and there was big sporting events Super Bowl you know the Masters uh, I'd find my colleagues who would come behind me on the news desk on the sports desk weren't even as sort of I suppose as well known as me at that stage, they were getting off to Augusta. They were going to uh, to, to the World Cup, wherever it was, uh, and the Olympic Games. I never moved from that sofa that I told you about, which was galling, really. So I've never been anywhere. And I do start the book by saying, you know, these people have been to all these places. But then, on the other hand, I have a, a plus on these people who are writing about sport there. They're, they're in the middle of it. I'm watching it the same way as most people in the UK are watching it. Most readers of the newspaper will have seen that, you know, it's a a fortunate few that get to go to Augusta. You know, they'll watch it on TV, the same as me. So I was, and this is where I start, the starting point of the book really is, I'm retelling the authentic sporting experience of the sports fan. It would be what? One in 10 sports fans if that, who would actually go to an Olympics or a Super Bowl, uh, they watch on TV.
0: And I was going to ask about that as we turn to the to the book. And I think this is really an important point for uh, you know someone like myself who who looks at the history of sport. The history of sport is typically written from the perspective of those who who were there, whether the athletes or the spectators or the journalists who wrote the immediate account. But you point out that most of us experience the events at home on our sofa watching it on, on television. So uh, in, from that starting point then, can you tell us what did you, what were you setting out to do in writing this book? Because this is not simply a compilation of your of your columns for The Guardian.
1: Oh no, it's not a compilation of the columns. I mean, uh, obviously for UK readers and for any any readers who, who grew up in the UK, they will recognize the characters. Um, what, the way I'm looking at it is that um, TV changed sport and sport changed TV um, sport is now a massive driver of uh, television um, uh, satellite TV in the uh, and I guess cable TV and satellite in in the states as well, but certainly over here. Um, the, we would not because the, the broadcasting atmosphere in the UK is totally different from the United States I remember years ago talking to someone from from the States and we are talking about TV and I said and then we have the BBC and we pay uh, £140 a year or whatever it was in those days uh, to watch the BBC and if we, have, if we own a television we've got to pay this £140 so I said everybody who owns a TV in Britain has to give £140 to the government and he said, hang on, run that by me again one more time. And I said, we pay the government £140 pounds for the privilege of having a television in the corner of our living room. And he said, wow, you'd never get away with that in the States. And it is a, a peculiar system because the BBC were first on the scene, and you paid a tax to the government to watch the BBC. There was no commercials, but that was it. You paid a tax. Then ITV came in. You know, which is independent television and that's a commercial um, organisation the ITV wasn't allowed to just say hey we're going to put TV on I mean you have the FCC in the States and everything which sort of polices the whole thing we go from the other way we have the independent broadcasting authority which told ITV they had to have religious programmes they had to have some, so much speech to, um, to ads it t- told them everything they were allowed to do so it was set up as like a sort of mini BBC with adverts then, uh, when satellite television came along uh, with Rupert Murdoch, who um, there, there was two rival satellite uh, organizations, there was BSB, which was a sort of British model, it was a little bit like the ITV. And then you had um, Rupert Murdoch and his Sky TV. Uh, he immediately blew them out of the water, and he blew them out of the water with sport because the now this. I'm going to stray into the area of cricket. Uh, The BBC had owned cricket all these years and the BBC had told cricket um, what they... You know, the BBC basically... um, I suppose it was the other way around it. Cricket had told the BBC how they could broadcast it. You can only do half an hour here and half an hour there. Uh, and then, of course, the BBC had to have children's television because the charter under which it was set up said you have to have children's television at 5 o'clock, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we were, we were rationed. It was almost as though it was still wartime. You know, it, it, in the 50s and 60s, we were rationed to what cricket we could watch, and we never saw any overseas cricket. So the England cricket team in the winter would go across to the West Indies. Um, and I can remember... You know, as, as late as the 70s and 80s, uh, getting the cricket scores on uh, teletext on the TV, uh, the text, do you have teletext in, in the States? Or It was called teletext or C-Fax. It was basically text on the TV. Mm-hmm. And people, there'd be groups of people just watching for the little message coming up on the TV <laughs> telling you what was happening in the cricket. Well, Rupert Murdoch came along and uh, there was a tour of the uh, of the West Indies, and he covered it every match live because he had these satellite channels. And, and now you could see cricket from the sunshine in the West Indies. You could sit there, uh, you know, whatever the time difference was, you, you, you'd sit there and watch it in the daytime, and it was brilliant. You know, there was uh, there was cricket coming from overseas. So in that respect, sport changed the broadcasting landscape of Britain. In the same way, um, television and broadcasting changed sport because the more money they were putting in, the more they became the paymaster and could tell sport what they wanted. You know, football matches, which were always in the U.S. soccer matches, sorry, in the U.K. were always three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. Well, if um, they're not now, they're all all over the place. You know, he wanted Monday Night Football. A lot of it was following the American, um, the American model. So he wanted Monday Night Football Murdoch. So he told them, you know, you want this huge sum of money we're paying for the rights. You'll play your match at 8 o'clock on a Monday night. You won't play at 3 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. So, um, you know, both sides changed as a result of that.
0: So in the early years of television, uh, uh, going back to... The late forties, the nineteen fifties. Uh, what was the what was the
1: view of the BBC toward broadcasting sports? Well, the sports were sort of. They, didn't, they thought, you know, sport was has always been important to TV, but they sort of threw it in as outside broadcast. They would talk about it as outside broadcast. So um, they, what was most important was anything involving the royal family. So if they I mean, in those days, people were crazy about the royal family. And uh, so any sporting event which uh, the Queen anointed, or any member of the royal family, like, for instance, the 66 World Cup which, and all that... So so any event that, uh, that the Royal Family endorsed, the, they would cover as an outside broadcast. Um, and anything that they thought was, because the BBC is the national broadcast, they didn't look and think, oh, we'll, we'll have to have league football. Mm-hmm. So there was, there, was, you know, there was highlights of league football, but they didn't really worry about live league football, uh, the soccer that is, they, they didn't worry too much about that. Um, but things like the Grand National, which is a great steeplechase, it's a, it's a huge race over high fences, it's once a year, it's a national event. The BBC went to great pains to broadcast that live. And it's also, you know, the Queen and the Queen Mother, very interested in horses. So anything involving horses, the BBC was unnaturally interested in horses.
0: You do write about, though, uh, uh, the BBC program Grandstand, and uh, I'll ask you, what, what role did that one program have in the history of sports
1: television in Britain? Uh, Grandstand was the, you know, it was it was a fantastic driver uh, of sport. 1958 that started Grandstand and uh, basically the idea was I mean, previous to that, what you'd had is they, they broadcast things like athletics and swimming and uh, a certain amount of boxing, but there would be a continuity announcer in very BBC fashion would say something on the lines of, uh, and now it's time for boxing and then you'd get the box. So it wasn't you anything else. sport, these were actors, confidence announcers were actors you know yeah yeah. it was very british so uh it wasn't as a sports fan you didn't feel you didn't feel taken in by you know what i mean they didn't invite you in and say wow boxing now you know um so they didn't take you into it at all they just said and now boxing. So when grandstand came along, and they had this guy called uh, David Coleman, uh, and I don't know who you, who in American equivalent would be Howard Cassell probably, but you know David Coleman, what became a national figure because he was he used to um, do the he used to do grandstand, and uh, his big thing was the results sequence. Uh, there are 92 teams in the football league, so there's 92 soccer teams. He knew when the scores came through on a tele. The printer. Uh, which, if you remember telex and all that, so very old old technology, but you know, those days very exciting, so the teleprinter would come up and it would, it would say you know, something like Manchester United 2, um, Charlton Athletic 1, and he'd say yes, that's the fourth time Manchester United have beaten Charlton Athletic in a home match in the last 12 years, the score of that, McDougal played for United, etc, you know, etc et and he'd know the history of every player and uh, you know, he took it so seriously, and that um, was the first time I think Anybody had taken it as seriously as that, and for you know, fans' eye view was great. You know, because here was a here was a fan. It wasn't a, an announcer that like you had. So that was that was big for that. And it also meant that sort of minority sports, like I suppose swimming, for instance, sports that haven't got a, a huge constituency of, uh, of viewers and fans could be part of this, you know, uh, the whole sporting programme. And and the BBC had everything in those days. The BBC had all the rugby. They had the cricket if they wanted it. They had, you know, the horse racing. Um, uh, And the only thing we didn't have was live soccer. That was why one of the reasons Cup final day was such a big day, because it was live soccer. BBC never had that, but, you know, everything else they had. And I
0: wanted to ask about David Coleman. You discussed a number of presenters in in your book, but but Coleman really has a, a central place in the book. And and you suggested Perhaps a figure like him in the states would be Howard Cosell. And as I was reading, and I'll throw this out to you. You know, Howard Cosell was very much a controversial figure. He was very, you know, a, a widely hated figure, uh, and he was known for his probing journalism. Whereas I got the sense that that Coleman was more. If you're familiar with Walter Cronkite, and his yes. his place, that he was this this trusted, perhaps august figure in in uh, in broadcasting and sports broadcasting. Would that be accurate?
1: Yeah, I think that's. I think you're probably right there. Howard Cassell was the first name that came to mind, but yeah, because Howard Cassell just uh, used to ask very probing questions, isn't he quite. Yeah, uh, Coleman was different. I mean, Coleman had the knowledge. He did ask probing questions, actually. And I, he was an athlete himself. Um, he was quite a good athlete and would have been. Probably uh, he had a couple of injuries, but he might have been an international athlete uh, had he not uh, pursued a TV career. Um, he was a perfectionist, and uh, he in a, the, the BBC as I've tried to paint it was sort of. Um, not quite as professional an outfit as I mean, it was, it wasn't that's wrong, it's professional, not the word. The BBC almost had a lit, a slight veneer of amateurism uh, about it. You know, it was a cozy, well, they call it anti BBC. It's always still known as anti BBC because it was like, you know, your auntie sitting in the corner of the room and it would be very good and very cozy, but there'd never be anything too dangerous, etc., etc., um, because it was, was owned by the government, I suppose. But um, Coleman was, was more probing and was um, was quite I don't know what the word is, actually. He, he could be quite acerbic, and he was certainly acerbic with the people who worked with him, and he wouldn't stand for anything that was slightly uh, wrong. I do tell the story in the book about uh, the uh, Mexico uh, World Cup, where the well, was in Mexico, and they're moving the cameras around, and uh, he is giving everybody dogs abuse, the producers, the directors, the camera people, right, get it right now. Like for God's sake, get it right! And he's swearing at these people and everything. And uh, this tape of uh, somebody taped it, all, all the stuff that was happening on the talkback went round the BBC. I think it was days before YouTube or any of that, and it went round the BBC. Uh, so he wasn't universally popular with everyone. Uh, but I did speak to the producer that he was abusing on the tape, where he's swearing at these people and telling them to get it right and everything. And he is full of admiration for Coleman. Oh. You know, he says the guy was absolutely right. So. I think he brought uh, a bit of professionalism to the BBC, or a bit more professionalism than they'd shown before him.
0: And I want to ask about that since you mentioned uh, uh, one of the interviews you do uh, that uh, you did quite a bit of research at the BBC in terms of looking at at, uh, not only tapes of old programs, but uh, it seems like old scripts as well and and, and interviewing all presenters.
1: The BBC is fantastic for proverb. It has a written archive that you know to die for. It's just unbelievable. Uh, it's it's like you sort see these in movies where somebody goes down into an archive in a cellar and there's. You know, corridor after corridor, row after row, stacks and stacks of metal shelves with folders and everything. Like that. And the BBC has one; it keeps it in, uh, in Berkshire, sort of hidden away. Fortunately, I knew someone who's done a bit of a few archive programs for the BBC, uh, and she said to me, "I'll go and have a route through and find stuff." And there's stuff in there about um, so that a very early presenter, Peter Dimmock, who almost invented sport on TV, but he was a predecessor uh, of David Coleman's, and uh, it, he, he needed, for, or persuaded the BBC that he needed a Savile Row suit uh, to present some half-hour sports program on the TV. And when you look at the, the whole budget, is laid out in this internal BBC memo, and the highest cost of anything on the program is his Savile Row suit. Um, Savile Row, for any listeners who don't know it, is the street. It's where the royal family get their suits from. A suit there now, you know, you'd be looking at, at £12,000, starting at 12000 maybe £20,000 to buy a suit there. This was back in 1956, so we were just talking a few hundred pounds, but in those days it was a year's wages. And all this stuff about people's expenses, um, little memos about we don't think this guy's doing a good job, uh, they're all there in the, uh, in the BBC archives. Unbelievable. Anybody who wrote anything to anybody, it's been kept. It's a fantastic record of... Uh, of the so, you know, I was able to look around there. It was difficult to to find everything you wanted because there's just so much of it. Um, but it is interesting because it, it's also got very early instructions to commentators, you know, exactly how they should behave, what they should look for, uh, and so on. Um, and there's a lot of stuff about radio... Uh, and radio commentators moving to TV, they always tend to talk too much um, Coleman was very good, he was an athletics commentator as well as being the presenter he knew when to talk and when to keep quiet I mean people, especially nowadays people sort of, uh, a lot of commentators have their ad libs carefully scripted mm. so that you know, should such a thing happen, they've got uh, Les bon mots they're already written down on a piece of paper um, Coleman was very good at letting the you know, a goal would go in, somebody would- <laughs> (laughs) score from 35 yards, a fantastic goalie, or whistling into the top of the net. And Coleman would be silent for a second to let it sink in, and then he'd just simply go, 1-0! And that became his catchphrase. His catchphrase was, 1-0! And the way he said it, it was as if he knew it was coming all along. He did. Wow. A lot of commentators, you know, something happens, and he's, oh, that's amazing. You know, they'll chatter on 12 to the dozen and they'll sound as shocked as you But Coleman, whatever happened, he would just sit there as if he knew it was about to happen. He'd say, one nil. You know, I, like, I knew it was going to be one nil. <laughs> It's, it's it was a bizarre turn, but really, really good. And I, I you know, nowadays they've got the they've got the, uh, the the review of the thing, the playback. You know, they can go back over an incident. They've got several angles. You know, talking about football matches, soccer matches covered with with two, maybe three cameras, uh, and no replays. You know, the, the replays started in I think the '66 World Cup was the first time uh, instant replay was used, but it was a very, very crude system even then Uh, and Coleman, I I watched an old cup final uh, and he picked a there was was an incident where somebody crashed the ball towards the net and they had it from a free kick and I think there was about seven or eight defenders on the line and he gets every single name spot on and he calls the incident and I I can't see it, it's like pinball, you know the ball's bouncing around all over the place Uh, no replay, no special angle, no computer technology and he calls it spot on unbelievable
0: I want to ask you about uh, the beginnings of the pre-game and post-game uh, panel discussion uh, among among former players, and this was this was correct. This was with ITV's coverage of the 1970 World Cup, and and you write about this as uh, a revelation to, to have a program like that, correct?
1: It was unbelievable. The 1970 uh, World Cup, really, it, it was... You know, there were people who'd played the game and there were managers. And in those days, there was less compliance. There was less... You know, there was, social networking wasn't started. So you went in the studio and you could basically say almost anything. And there was a, a groundbreaking producer at ITV, a chap called John Bromley, who just, he, I mean, he invented the format really. And he got these people and said, right, you're not going to just turn up on the day. For the, we're going to cloister you together for uh, the whole fortnight of the, uh, of the World Cup. And he put them into a hotel. He gave them free run of the mini bar, which was occasionally fairly apparent on the TV. And he just let them go for it, which was so different from the i mean our tradition of television in british in britain is so gentlemanly i'm rather like i was indicating earlier on but even in 1970 it was i mean you wouldn't think that uh, if you watch tv from the late 1960s and you think, wow, this was a period when when the UK was producing the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, you know, Jimi Hendrix had to go from America to Britain to become a star. And you think of what we were producing, in, in, you know, in art, in fashion, in popular music. You'd think Britain, but it, on TV, because it was just the BBC and the ITV, and the ITV was uh, this thing I mentioned earlier on the IBA, the Internet Independent Broadcast Authority, kept the ITV like a sort of BBC. Um, it was. Uh, it was a revelation when you got these four guys saying exactly what they wanted to say, and they when uh, England went out of the World Cup in the quarter final, um, rather uh, unfortunately to uh, to Germany, and uh, one of the players from the team, uh, Alan Mullery, who was playing for the for the England team, uh, unbeknownst to the panel, who had been slagging him off and saying he was a waste of space and shouldn't have been in the England team because they were very outspoken. Um, what happened as John Bromley, the producer, flew him back from Mexico not and he appeared in the studio he walked into the studio while the panel was on the air and threw his England shirt at the particular pundit that had been having a go in well British TV had never seen anything like that before you know not even remotely like that rather like uh, and I do mention in the book that it's um, like now we're all familiar with uh, with Britain's Got Talent and uh, The X Factor and you have the similar shows in America Pop Idol and all the, uh, the singing talent shows where you do have a panel of four and largely go, because you've taken that from us to an extent. You know, in the States, I know Simon Cowell is a sort of inventor of that thing. But the format of the four people is almost exactly the same as that 1970 World Cup panel, which takes me back to what I was saying about sport on TV has sort of influenced TV generally. You know, so both, you know, TV generally is taken from sport on TV. And the way sport is done is often, I mean, if you look at competitive cooking, competitive baking, everything on TV is now in the language of sports, you know, all these reality shows, you know, I'm going to nail it. I'm going to give it 100 percent, etc. All comes from sport.
0: I think I think that was one of the uh, key points that you made at the start of the book and which gave me pause. And I realized, yeah, that, that's right. That uh, really all of television has become like sports yep. television.
1: absolutely all those reality shows they're a contest Uh, when you look at uh, uh, game shows and um, quiz shows now, I knew you had the weakest link the same as we had over here and uh, you've got 15 people it's gladiatorial right, it's general knowledge but it's like it's like sport. When you when you see something like the Week is Link, um, she'll go round the contestants and say, Who do you think's gonna go out next? Who would you vote for? You know, they have the little interview, don't they? Who would you vote for to go out next? Uh, and that's that's the language of sport that's like sports punditry and i would say in the uk at least it started in 1970 i know you've always had more of a tradition in america of having outspoken pundits you know people who uh um, i mentioned how Cassella earlier um you know you'd have big you you had three or four people in the commentary box it took us until the, well, in about mid-60s, we started getting two people in the country box. But uh, now it's... Uh, and Aus- I watch more Australian TV than I do American TV, but you know, in Australia, with you know, the Aussie rules football, it's all quite outspoken, uh, and Australian Rugby League as well.
0: Before we turn to Satellite and, and the advent of Sky, I do want to ask uh, about cricket in the, in the 60s. And uh, what, this is something you discuss in the book, is the development of limited overs cricket to get cricket on television. So can you talk about that?
1: Yes, uh, that uh, the one day cricket or limited overs cricket. Uh, cricket, uh, traditionally a test match, goes on for five days, which uh, may end in a draw. And again, I mentioned earlier, uh, if you try and explain to an American the concept of the licence fee to watch TV, they say, what? And then you explain cricket, goes on for five days and may end in a draw. They, you know, they're even more bamboozled. So um, what happened was it started off, um, I mean, it started off basically there was somebody who was working for uh, Leicestershire for a, for, a, for a cricket club, one of the counties, because it's, it's, it's played amongst counties in the UK, not towns. So you haven't got like a Manchester and a London cricket uh, team. What you have is at Lancashire and you have Yorkshire and you have the various counties throughout the UK who, who play cricket. Uh, and the county championship used to be reasonably popular. So people would, you know, would put aside, well, it was three days for a county match, five days for, a, for an international match. Test cricket. Has always been very popular. That's cricket between England, Australia, India, New Zealand, Sri Lanka, They're, you know that sort of thing. Uh, the old Commonwealth, if you like. So um, I mean, America got out of the Commonwealth a long time ago, so you didn't uh, you didn't get drawn into the cricket business. But yeah, so uh, those those matches have always been popular. The county championships, not so much. Uh, but there was somebody sitting there and thought, well, we've got uh, a few days free in between these three day matches, which was sort of withering on the vine it was dying the three-day game and he thought what if we play a little bit of a knockout tournament so we just play uh, forty overs and over being six balls, so we play forty overs. Um, one team against another team. We we'll maybe get four four counties involved, and we have a little bit of a um, a little bit of a tournament over a maybe over the bank holiday. and It was Easter or something like that. Uh, and they did that. And it was absolutely roar away success. People loved it. I mean, it seems ridiculous that we had to wait for the nineteen sixties for someone to think, "Hey, why don't we try?" try and condense this game a bit I make it a little bit shorter maybe people will enjoy that more and of course people did uh, and then the great thing was they they, uh, they got sponsorship from uh, cigarette companies uh, and such like um, which was great because they could get on the BBC and this was the first time the tobacco people had been able to to get on the BBC you know? and again it all goes back to the extraordinary uniqueness of the British broadcasting landscape you know uh, and this is radio we had no commercial radio we didn't have Commercial radio until 1975, which is remarkable, really. We had pirate radio in the 1960s, but the government shut it down because you know they're playing commercials and pop music records and things. Um, so it, it wasn't, you know, in that respect, it was a very backward broadcasting landscape. So now the tobacco companies found they could get on the BBC if they got uh, a tournament on there. And the BBC, similarly, in the past, the BBC were just spectators, not participants. So if you see what I mean, there's a cricket match going on. The BBC are told, that's where you'll stand, that's where you'll sit and you'll do the interviews when we tell you, and you won't go and interview players as they come off the pitch. You'll wait till they've had a shower, and then you can do a gentlemanly interview with them. Now that the tobacco companies wanted to be, now that this one-day cricket had been invented, and you know, the counties were getting the money, you know, because cricket's always been a severely underfunded sport, so they were getting the money from the tobacco companies and such, other like the sponsors. Um, they, so they were anxious to be on the television, and the sponsors wanted to be on the television, so the BBC said, yes, we'll broadcast this, but we're going to stand at the edge of the pitch. We're not going to. Uh, we're not going to. You know, we'll have a commentary box. Then we'll have a presenter. He'll interview players as they come off. He'll do. Uh, you know, we'll have a tea interval here because we need a tea interval here, and it'll all end up at six thirty because we have this program that starts at six thirty. So that's what you'll do if you can play this cricket between two pm on a Sunday afternoon. Finish it at six thirty. Then uh, and we have access to all areas then we'll do it and of course from there uh, other sponsors uh, came you know came in and uh, and it was born so one day cricket uh, was the savior very much because cricket was dying as a county championship. It's always had great appeal as a test match, but the BBC would show test matches and they wouldn't show half the match. As I was mentioning earlier on, they would break for children's television and then they'd come back a little bit later on. They had half an hour early evening, just as the play wound up. But um, so the thing about cricket is because it goes on for such a long time, even one day cricket can be you know, a long match, it is difficult for a channel that isn't a specialist sports channel to show it all, uh, which was why the advent of satellite was so good for cricket.
0: And so picking up with that, I want to talk about the emergence of sky sports, which you've already talked about uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. And the conventional story about the the rise of sky sports is its association with the creation of the Premier League. Uh, But you have a different take, which you've hinted at already and you talk more about in the book, uh, that it it wasn't soccer that established sky. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes. And when Sky TV first started, now their initial plan was it was going to be movies. Movies, they reckon, was going to be what Sky was sold on. Um, You know, very popular Hollywood movies. And deals were done in the States to buy um, with the studios at very disadvantageous rates to uh, to Sky um, to buy up a lot of movies. So it was going to be Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, whoever his equivalent was back then in 1989 who was going to be Sky TV you know, was going to save Sky TV Uh, so basically uh, what happened was that the people who bought into Sky TV were largely um, because don't forget we have a very rigid class system in uh, the UK. So there were largely people in uh, poorer areas, if you like, and there were all sorts of jokes about sky, uh, jokes on the lines of um, what's... Um, you also have to remember we have council houses, which I mm-hmm. suppose you call projects, and they would say, um, you know, what's, uh, what's grey and hangs off the end of a sky dish? And the answer was a council house because it was thought of as being very infra dig, mm. very uh, lower class to have uh, Sky TV because it wasn't classy like the BBC or even the ITV. It was a, a notch below all that. And it was for people who just wanted some... It was for couch potatoes. That was what they said about Sky. When Sky got the cricket... Um, that was when the sort of prosperous areas around London, where cricket was still a very big sport, thought, wow, I want to watch the cricket. I'll have to get Sky. And then the sales of the dishes... Uh, rose exponentially, uh, and then uh, probably also as a result of that, football became more of um, a classless sport, if you like. Like you know, the oldest cricket was the, the tough sport; was cricket and rugby union. You know, the plebs sport was uh, was soccer. Uh, now um, people buy the sky dishes for the for the cricket. The football became even more important, and it grew from that. But what you know, Murdoch whatever you say about him, had to hold his nerve because their losses were phenomenal uh, in the early days and people predicted Sky wouldn't last very long. And when they did get the Premier League and paid... Quite a, what in those days was sort of been quite a lot of money for it. Um, Greg Dyke, who had the TV, he was outbid. He's ITV's man. He was outbid by uh, Murdoch's Sky uh, organisation. He called his troops around, who were naturally despondent at losing the football. You know, the commentators they were going to lose their jobs. Uh, and those people, he called them around and said, don't worry, Sky's paid too much of it. They'll be gone within a year. Um, and how wrong he was, it just grew and grew. And it grew. The the popularity of football sort of helped. The fact, I mean, there were a number of things about football. There was the 1990 World Cup was was key for uh, Sky TV because um, we uh, England did rather well in that uh, World Cup. Uh, We got to the semi-final. Very unfortunate not to get to the uh, to the final. We were beaten by uh, Germany. Uh, in uh, an epic uh, semi-final, which went to extra time and penalties. Uh, we lost on penalties, and that's a hugely exciting uh, way for a football match to end. I know, again, uh, Americans are always amazed that people go and watch a draw, you know, uh, or a tie, if, if you like, you know, and uh, but with penalties... It ends. There's an ending. And the ending was that England unfortunately went out. Uh, Paul Gascoigne, who was the uh, pin-up boy of uh, British soccer at the time, uh, he was booked in the match, which meant that if we got to the final, he was going to miss the final. Uh, and he, he he cried, you know, and uh, that was shown on TV. And women looked at it and they thought, wow, there's a huma- human side to this football. The whole nation was watching. There was a huge audience. Uh, and at that point, football, you know, and people, if people wanted the football... They had to get Sky. So, um, yeah, I would say it was cricket that really started, that really broke Sky and, and, and sh- showed them that they could, you know, that they could make money th- from sport through Sky. Uh, but it was football, I suppose, that gave it mass family appeal.
0: So you're just talking about the World Cup and, and, you know, these particular moments that you watch that are become part of the collective memory and something that was striking in reading your book is, you know, I did see parallels, and we've talked about those, between the history of sports television in Britain and the history of sports television in the United States. But in terms of, of the content of what we watched on different sides of the Atlantic, it was, you know, completely different, and those are, are key in terms of how our, our culture has been shaped. And I want to ask you, you know, I imagine that, that uh, uh, British men, when they get together, like American men, they'll, you know, the wives are in the other room. They'll start talking about a game or a comment or some play in a game from decades ago. So, so among your friends, when you get together at the pub or you get together and the wives are in the other room, what's, what's the one moment from, from your lives of watching sports television that, that you always come back to? Yeah, remember, remember watching that.
1: Yeah, well, it will be. It will be World Cup moments. We remember um, David Beckham uh, in the World Cup in France in nineteen ninety eight. He was lying on the ground and he just kicked his leg up ever so slightly. I, I saw that one. I saw. So that's something we can share. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, definitely, definitely. So people remember. remember that specifically um, in terms of uh, football things that we saw on Match of the Day years and years ago, um, like for instance Beckham's from the inside his own half and he scored a goal there so it's characters like that that you remember uh, you remember um, you remember sort of really dirty matches uh, there was a, a, a an FA Cup final in 1970 between Leeds and Chelsea where um, they just kicked lumps out of each other, these players for um, you know for a whole hour and a half and the city instances from I was shown on sort of archive uh, TV shows. Uh, So you remember those moments. uh, And also the uh, Chile-Italy match from the 1962 World Cup uh, which was just unbelievable, I mean it, they really were, I mean the, the, the players were launching themselves at other players and there was constant fights and punching and all that, so you remember all those uh, incidents um, it, it, would, it would be largely uh, England or Scotland's World Cup history because Scotland um, the Scotland's World Cup history is interesting because they always go out there thinking they're going to they're frighten the world, that's a Scottish way it's a sort of Rob Roy type an ML Gibson moment really, and they always say we're going to go over there and we're going to the rest of the world, and then they get beaten by Iran. You know, Iran, who's sort of the eleven people who play soccer in Iran, they've rounded them all up, sent them to a World Cup, and then they'll beat Scotland. And then you know, especially as the World Cup in Argentina, Scotland um, were beaten by. I can't remember who it was that time. But it was it was Iran or Vatican City or somebody. They were beaten by somebody that should never have got beaten by. And then they played Holland. You know, who were great football. You know, one of Europe's great football teams, and beat them three one. And they nearly got through to the uh, you know, the final stages after having thrown it away. So that's always a rich source of comedy, which we we'll, you know which we talk about. Yeah, I think it's the comedy of it that we like a lot. You know, uh, there's a, the seventies, which is a great period for um, for a facial hair, a lot of um, midfield players, uh, which you know. Defensive midfield players, so they're the uh, destroyers, they're the enforcers. Thought that they would look tougher if they grew beard, moustache, and let their hair grow long, so they looked like you know WWE wrestlers, if you like, or members of a heavy rock band. So you'd have you know the four men across midfield, Stoke City, were one of these teams, the four men across the midfield, they'd look, like they'd step straight out of Spinal Tap. You know, it was just uh, so you know you talk about the hair. I'm sure you do it in the states as well. You talk about un- haircuts, you talk about you talk probably less about beautiful goals and more about unwise haircuts, characters in the game, uh, that sort of thing and of course TV did bring these people right into your living room. You know, a ma- uh, match of the day was was key in that. Um, there, was, there was one great moment. There's two of these guys with the long hair looking like the heavy rock people. Uh, the match was Sheffield United versus somebody. I can't remember the exact match, but um, one of them had tripped the other guy up and they were both on the floor. And um, clearly he wanted to say, no hard feelings, mate. And he actually kissed the guy on the lips and the BBC got a close-up of this so you it's a great still I mean you see the still photographs sometimes uh, I, I think it was Tony Curry was one of the guys I can't remember the other guy but that's not important there were two long-haired midfield footballers kissing each other on the lips in the middle of a soccer match and you remember moments like that and it is to, you know, like I say because I've been writing this column so long um, most of this stuff I've watched on the TV uh, and it does bring it right into your living room
0: martin you've already shown your knowledge of of american sports and, and i know that you visited the united states what's the one thing about american sports on television that that really strikes you as as different from from the way sports is presented on television in britain
1: well it's the it's the sports chat shows that you have um like round the horn and there's the guy on fire jim rome or whatever he's called <laughs> Uh, that sort of thing. And I think, uh, you know, your pundits do tend to be uh, a more outspoken, more fluent. Uh, I, I do a radio show over here uh, called Fighting Talk, which is an exact steel around the horn. Basically, it's four people. Uh, and we talk, ours is probably a little bit more jokey than uh, than round the horn. So uh, when I'm watching American sports on TV, it's the quality of the punditry. I, I, I say the quality because because I don't understand the sport so well. Uh, I don't know if they might be talking absolute nonsense. You know, in terms of just reading the plays and things. Uh, I would say the fluency of the punditry uh, is. Uh, I think your players there because America is probably you've is more of a media savvy culture maybe than the uk uh what you find is that these these chaps from american football seem to be seem to find the transition into broadcasting easier than our, than our boys do over here so that's the main thing that i notice uh, about american sports so we're almost out of time martin and uh, uh something i want to ask you something that that i
0: smiled at in your book is uh your description of you and your friends when you were younger Providing the sportscaster's narration to whatever game you were playing, I think it was 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 it billiards or snooker that that you're describing in the book? And,
1: well, uh, no, mainly on the football. It, Maybe it, was, it was the
0: football, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. No, it was a tradition. That was I was saying. It was the only time you had TV in the morning. Yeah. And as a kid, that was fantastic. TV in the morning, you can get up and you can switch on the TV, and there it is. And there's guys talking about football and they're showing old matches and that sort of thing, and then. Um, there was a, there was always a break just before the I say a break, they were they went to the crowd and there was a bit of community singing, you know, people just sing and it was all you didn't want to sing and then somebody would come out and sing the national anthem. Well the last thing you wanted was sort of uh, and in those days, you know, it wasn't like Beyonce or anybody, it was sort of, you know it was the male voice choir from somewhere would be singing the national anthem. You wouldn't want to hear all that. So just before the match started, you'd go out into the street and then you would play the uh, teams. But there was, at the time you were playing the teams, you would uh, you would commentate as well so I'd be just drilling and it's Kellner Kellner with the ball Kellner beats one beats two you know it was just and you'd smash into and you'd use you know the uh, catchphrase of the commentator so you'd bash into that and say one nil like that so you know <laughs> you were both commentator and player it was great days
0: well I was going to say you know that's as I said I smiled at that because I, I did the same thing as yeah. uh, when I was younger my sons do that and when I go out in the yard to play with my sons I still do it And I wanted to ask you, I I don't know if you have an answer, but why is it that the male of the species does that?
1: Ooh, Well, I think it's just because you experience the match like that with the commentary, it just gives it that... It's just an edge of reality. It's rather like uh, computer games with, you know, realistic graphics and sound effects and things. Well, we didn't have them. You know, when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, didn't have realistic graphics and sound effects. And the most realistic I could get was um, imitating the commentator as you were scoring, because that's how you would experience it on the TV. You know, it wouldn't be silent. It would be, um, you know, you'd hear hear the sounds with it.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Martin Kellner. About his book, Sit Down and Cheer, A History of Sport on TV, published in 2012 by Bloomsbury. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like psychology, science, language, and music. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter, or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and enjoy your week.